This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Last month, the city of Denver agreed to a $4.6 million settlement to the family of Michael Marshall, a mentally ill inmate who was killed two years ago by sheriff's deputies. The case has raised questions about interactions between Denver's criminal justice system and its vulnerable populations, including the mentally ill, young people, and the homeless. This week, a conference is being held on that question in Denver. We spoke with Nick Mitchell, the city's independent monitor, before it began. Nick, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Nathan. This conference is being sponsored by the National Association for Civilian Oversight of Law Enforcement. And you're trying to reach a lot of stakeholders here. But let's begin by defining who you regard as vulnerable in this context. Sure. Um, well, you know, I think the when we, we say vulnerable populations, we're talking about uh, folks who, uh, due to their life circumstances, may be at increased risk of contact with law enforcement, uh, and maybe uh, if they end up within the criminal justice system, they may be at increased risk of vi- victimization uh, while they're inside. What makes their lives more vulnerable than others? Is is it a, a matter of privilege or, or a lack of privilege? Certainly, we have many folks in our city here in Denver and, and around the country who are suffering from mental illness, and there is uh, you know some pretty persuasive national research that shows that when folks are mentally ill and and perhaps are unmedicated or untreated, they may often act out in ways that violate the law, uh, which will attract police attention and perhaps embroil them within the criminal justice system. But fundamentally, the problem, the reason why they're acting out is because of that untreated mental illness. And what we're trying to do at this conference is begin to look at the root cause of, of the behavior, not just focus on the criminal behavior itself. So does that create a cycle, uh, if you will, of of being arrested for maybe a mental episode and then being released and being arrested and being released and kind of institutionalizing this person into the into the prison system? It certainly can. Um, You know, the the recidivism numbers in general for. Uh, for uh, for the entire population that goes through our criminal justice system tend to be pretty disheartening. According to the most recent data that I've seen, who go through our jails here in Denver are rearrested and end up back in jail within one year after their release. So that's for the, the population as a whole. But certainly for folks who are mentally ill or otherwise marginalized, uh, who don't have a lot of resources uh, or support to help them kind of transition back into society, they are at, at a greater risk of getting into the kind of cycle you describe where they're just going in and out of our justice system on a, on a regular basis. But but if a person sees someone, let's say, urinating on the street and they call the police, regardless of the person's you know, mental state, shouldn't the person who called have that expectation that you know there should be an arrest or maybe someone being charged, whether it's for public exposure or indecency or something like that? Yes, and I don't think those two ideas are not mutually exclusive. Okay. Uh, you know, we all are accountable for our actions. Our actions have consequences. Sometimes they have criminal consequences. Uh, you know, that's an important sort of principle of our society that I'm certainly not advocating that we uh, we step away from. What what I think I'm saying and what we're trying to look uh, more deeply at in this conference is that often the criminal behavior, uh, if you will, uh, is a symptom of some other condition. Uh, and, and we as a society have an obligation to look beyond just that symptom. You know, it's not enough to 
to just arrest someone or issue someone a citation because people don't usually get better and people don't usually uh, learn to correct their behaviors or adjust their lives through, you know, arrest and incarceration. What we need to be doing as a society is looking deeper and trying to treat, you know, the underlying life circumstance that may be causing them to act in ways that violate the law. We have some very good programs in the city of Denver that attempt to do exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, we have some problem-solving courts that have been set up by our county court system that do a very good job of trying to divert uh, folks who, who are mentally ill from the criminal justice system and provide them with treatment. We have a sobriety court and other courts that are doing a great job. So part of what we're looking at it, it, in this conference is what's working well with, uh, with uh, the way that we're dealing with vulnerable populations and also what needs to be improved. Are cities putting too much pressure on the criminal justice system to have all the answers and provide, uh, you know, solutions for these these bigger issues here? Undoubtedly. Yeah, I think that that is absolutely true. Um, you know, I spend a lot of time talking with the police officers in Denver, uh, and I hear almost uniformly uh, a concern and a complaint from police officers that they are spending an inordinate amount of time responding to 911 calls involving uh, mental health issues, involving substance abuse issues. Frankly, it uh, detracts from their ability to respond to more serious crime. So there's a public safety element to this. You know, when, uh, when you need the police to respond because you're in danger or your family's in danger or someone that, that you or someone you love has been victimized, you need to know that you're going to get a timely, fast police response. Uh, and if the officer who covers your precinct is, you know, one block over responding to a call because grandpa isn't taking his psychiatric medication, that's going to delay your ability to get a, a police response. So, you know, I think certainly the criminal justice system is having to step up in ways, you know, to deal with broader social problems that it wasn't really set up to deal with, and it's not really equipped to deal with them. When police encounter a situation like you just mentioned, what is their expectation that they're going to be able to figure that out, that someone is mentally ill and take appropriate action? Well, it puts police officers in a very, very tough spot. The expectation, of course, is that they'll enforce the law. Uh, you know, they have the discretion to determine how they do that, in some cases, whether or not they will make an arrest or not. But it puts them in a very tough spot. While police officers have lots of training in crisis intervention techniques uh, and other mental health training, they're really not equipped to be social workers. You know, they're really not equipped to help problem solve and get someone into treatment. I think to the credit of the Denver Police Department, the DPD has created a co-responder program uh, where it sends uh, trained mental health professionals out with police officers to help deal with some of those calls. And it's a great program. I think it's already having some real benefits in our city, but it's not enough, uh, you know, because as you, you point out, uh, or as you, you suggest in your question, the justice system, uh, you know, just uh, is not equipped to deal with some of these problems. You monitor Denver's police and sheriff's departments. Uh, who do you think should be stepping in and playing a bigger role here? Is it lawmakers, the, the medical community, someone else? You know, I think all of the above and, and more. I think it's it's political leaders. I think it's law enforcement leaders. I think it's judges. Uh, I think it's uh, the community. Uh, you know, we have at, at this conference 
uh, we've intentionally sought to include lots of community voices uh, on the panels. We have, you know, national experts from L.A. and, and New York and, uh, and Seattle and other cities around the country, as well as local experts. And we've also sought to bring, you know, community expertise to the table. And I think everyone has to kind of come together and figure out what we want to do. There's, there's broad consensus that our justice system needs a lot of work. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. I'm speaking with Nick Mitchell, Denver's independent monitor, about the city's vulnerable populations and how they interact with its sheriff and police departments, agencies that he monitors. Michael Marshall was arrested in 2015 for trespassing and held on a $100 bond. He was then killed in jail a short time later following a psychotic episode. Should Denver hold nonviolent offenders with bail or should they be released until their court date? Yeah, that's a, I think that's a great question. Um, certainly, as we look at that incident, as we look at what happened to Michael Marshall, you know, I think we should be not only looking at the particulars of uh, the use of force, for example, but we need to be rewinding to look at the decision to arrest him on a trespassing charge, the decision to hold him on a $100 bond, you know, all of the many decision points that ultimately culminated uh, in his death and in the payment by the city of a $4.65 million settlement. Uh, And if we could change the decision at any one of those decision points, could we have avoided the tragedy of his death? And could we have avoided the tragedy of taxpayers paying out $4.65 million of tax money that perhaps could have been spent in some other productive way for the city? And one of the things that needs to be looked at is our bail system. As you you say, we hold many people on uh, small money bail pending their trial simply because they can't afford to bond out. And that is something that's being examined in a number of other cities. And I think we should be having that, that, uh, that same discussion here in Denver. As part of the settlement in this case, there will be changes in how sheriff's deputies are trained. Are those changes enough for you? You know, I, I think that the training, I think, is a positive step. And providing deputy sheriffs and police officers with the tools they need and the training they need to address that they are coming into contact with lots of people who are in a period of psychosis or are are mentally ill is a very good thing. And it's something that we need to support and encourage. But you can't train your way out of this broader social problem. And no matter how much training you give to Denver deputy sheriffs, I fear that we'll continue to have tragedies like the like the uh, like the death of Michael Marshall. And I think that's the that's the conversation that we need to be having. Not just what kind of training can we provide, but how do we change the system to no longer be incarcerating folks like Michael Marshall? And finally, what are you saying to families of vulnerable people who may be in the system right now? What words can you give them to say, "Hey, we're, we're trying to figure this out." You know, I'm not sure that uh, my words will make that much of a difference when someone has, you know, a loved one who, uh, you know, may be mentally ill or a, a juvenile who has been swept up into the criminal justice system unnecessarily. I'm not sure that hearing me talk on the radio is going to bring, you know, a mom a lot of comfort in that circumstance. Certainly, uh, we are working on these issues. People care about these issues. You know, I think political leaders in our city uh, and law enforcement leaders and, and, and leaders in the judiciary care about these issues, and we're trying to work on them. Whether that brings any comfort or not, I'm not sure. Thanks for being here. Thank you. 
Nick Mitchell is the Independent Monitor, the civilian oversight agency for the city and county of Denver. His office is part of the National Association for Civilian Oversight of Law Enforcement, which is hosting a conference in Denver this week on the oversight of vulnerable populations. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Colorado's Front Range isn't the only place facing a development boom. On the western slope, our next guest says that unprecedented growth and political pressures present a threat to open space. That threat has led two groups that preserve land to join forces. Rob Bleiberg leads the new Colorado West Land Trust. He joins us from the CPR studios on Main Street in Grand Junction. Welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm glad to have the opportunity to be with you today. So, Jointly, you have 100,000 acres preserved on the Western Slope. Are, are there some key areas you hope to protect under this new partnership? Yeah, we, we've actually, the two organizations have conserved about 120,000 acres. So that's approaching about 200 square miles, and that's across six West Slope counties. And, and these lands include some of the most beautiful places in the state, some of the most productive agricultural lands. And so when you think of... Uh, Going down to your farmer's market in the spring, I mean, I'm sorry, in the, in the heat of July and August and uh, picking up a peach and biting into that delicious, juicy fruit, uh, there's a good chance that that, pro- that fruit came from a property that has been conserved either through, uh, through the work of the Colorado West Land Trust. If you've been driving down through, uh, say, Ridgeway on the way to, to Telluride, you're passing beautiful properties that have been conserved by, by the work of our organizations. Uh, so, so those are just a few examples. I could, I could go on and on, but I, I, I'll stop there. The Colorado West Land Trust was created from the 40-year-old Mesa Land Trust and the 17-year-old Black Canyon Trust. Why do you believe preservation of these places will be easier with your combined forces? These former land trusts seem to be pretty established. They, they, we both have a strong track record. And about two years ago, we began a, a conversation to talk about how could we strengthen the work that we do? How could we increase the pace, the permanence, and the quality of the conservation efforts? And over the two years, we determined that uh, we can best serve the region and the state by, by consolidating our operations and, and creating Colorado West Land Trust. So what are the forces at play here? Help us understand what's happening on the Western Slope that makes this such a critical time to preserve public lands. Well, I, well, I, a couple things. First, we focus on private lands, and, and there are about 30-plus land trusts in the state, and most of us are working on privately held properties. And it, it's really critical for a number of reasons. I would argue that Colorado's greatest asset is its its lands and its waters. It's an incredible landscape. And as, as all of us know, Colorado is experiencing tremendous population growth. Uh, the states in the next 25 years or so is, is slated to uh, uh, to welcome new neighbors equivalent to today's population of Denver, El Paso County, Boulder County, and Jefferson County combined. Where are these folks going to live? Um, how do we preserve the, the, the attributes that make Colorado such a special place? That's really a driving question. On the West Slope, we're anticipating hundreds of thousands of new residents. We're anticipating Mesa County to over the next two and a half decades or so to add population equivalent today's, to today's city of Grand Junction. Montrose County will add about one and a half times today's city of Montrose. So we need to uh, roll up our sleeves and get to work to make sure that the landscapes that, that define our state, that underpin our economy, are around for our grandchildren and theirs to enjoy. Land 
conservancy can be a pretty murky concept. Uh, can you explain how it works in really general terms? What does it mean for a landowner to work with you? Yep. So uh, it is uh, we, we do occupy an obscure corner of the, the conservation world. Our, our work is based on collaboration and using incentive-based tools that are built on a foundation of private property rights. And so what that means for a landowner is if, if a farmer or rancher or other property owner wants to conserve their land and wants to realize some financial benefit, there are some tax incentives. And, and occasionally through Great Outdoors Colorado and other sources, there are some funds that we can raise to bring dollars to the table. But what we're talking about are voluntary conservation agreements between a private property owner and a group like uh, Colorado Westland Trust. So and someone's saying, I'm not going to sell to a developer. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something with your group and kind of keep this space open. Exactly. And, and landowners are motivated to do this because the, their land is their livelihood and they want to see that perpetuated. They may do that because of a strong emotional family connection to a piece of property. Or they may do it just because they bought the property and they love it and they recognize that the wildlife attributes or the scenic values are so important that they really ought to be conserved for future for the future. Now, there are some local officials in your area that aren't on board with land conservancy. They fear it could lead to eventual federal government takeovers of the land. That's their view. Uh, and the Trump administration has made rolling back restrictions on public la- or, uh, on land in general uh, a priority. How has that impacted what you do? One of the things that I love about our work is that it's nonpartisan. I, I work uh, and I sit across the table and, and ink conservation deals with the most conservative landowners you can imagine and also some of the most liberal man- landowners you can imagine. So this is a bipartisan effort. And, and it's really – and the tools that we use are incentive-based, so no one's being forced to do anything. So what we found is that there's been a, a groundswell of support from landowners and community members to continue this critical work of conserving the landscapes that are so important to our state. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm speaking with Rob Lyberg. He's the director of the Colorado West Land Trust, a new creation from the merging of two well-established land trusts on the state's western slope. At the same time you face these challenges, uh, the Colorado has one of the most powerful tax incentives for land conservation in the country. Uh, will that uh, override potential things happening currently in uh, in in the Congress, we're talking about tax plans and things that could affect what happens with land trusts here in Colorado. I'll respond to that in a couple different ways. At the State House, there are two important uh, actions that we want to see occur in this next legislative session, and one is to reauthorize Great Outdoors Colorado, which uh, needs to be reauthorized by the legislature. And then we also, at the risk of going down an obscure legislative rabbit hole, we also need to see the Conservation Easement Oversight Commission uh, reauthorized as well. That's that's the body that oversees the the state tax credit here. At, at the federal level, I'll just say there are a couple things in the tax uh, in the current tax reform legislation that that are troubling. One is um, that. The way that the legislation is written now is it may remove the incentive for charitable donations for many, many Americans. And we think this, so this isn't a land trust issue. It's a it's a charity and a community issue. We think that that we know that nonprofit organizations play a vital role across the state. And we want to see that there's nothing done that would undermine support for that. And then we also think that the current tax reform legislation calls for repealing the Johnson Amendment, which prohibits land uh, nonprofits from uh from politicking or from electioneering, I should say, and, and we do not think that it's as a, a good as a religious idea. Religious thing, but but you're speaking as a, as a nonprofit as well. 
it's all nonprofits or would be affected by this. And so I th- we think the last thing that, that we want to see happen is that all of a sudden floods of dark money come into your favorite charity and all of a sudden they're taking full page, ad- full page ads opposing a specific candidate or supporting a candidate. That's, that's not good for the, for the state, for the community. And, uh, and so we think those, those changes are important to make in the current legislation. In terms of, of land conservation, what about urban spaces? We're talking about wide open spaces on the Western Slope, but should land conservation groups be more involved in shaping cities and, and their open spaces too? Well, the the great thing about land conservation in the state of Colorado is it's, it's a locally driven grassroots effort. So what, what we do in, in Grand Junction to promote trails, for example, uh, serves our community, and that's going to be different than what happens in Gunnison, and that's going to be different when it happens with a group like in Denver, like with a group like the Trust for Public Land. So we have uh, dozens of organizations around the state that are doing their best to meet their community's needs. So uh, yes, we need to be working uh, across the state and responding to the specific needs of, of our communities. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Rob Leiberg is the executive director of the newly consolidated Colorado West Land Trust. He joined us from our studio on Main Street in Grand Junction. From the western slope to the eastern plains now, a dispute over manure and dead fish is headed to court. Early next year, a judge in Yuma County considers whether a feedlot killed thousands of fish. And there's a lot of money at stake. CPR Sam Brash has the story of one of the biggest and least talked about fish kills in recent Colorado history. The incident occurred right on the Kansas border, about 20 miles north of I-70. It's where you'll find the South Republican State Wildlife Area. It offers camping spots for hunters and a set of ponds for fishermen. In June of 2015, Kenny Condry went to check on those ponds, and he found... It was just solid dead fish. They were everywhere. It was bad news for Condry. He lives nearby and sells bait to local fishermen. And aside from the fish, he remembers something was up with the water. It was really brown. It was bad. You know, it smelled like a feedlot. It smelled like cow poop. And there is a massive amount of cow manure just upstream at Five Star Feedlot. The operation fattens up cattle before they head to the slaughterhouse. Colorado blames the feedlot for killing nearly 15,000 fish following that 2015 rainstorm. Since wildlife are legally considered state property, Colorado Parks and Wildlife is suing Five Star for half a million dollars in damages. What do you stand to lose from taking a hit like that? This could potentially put you out of business or make it to where it could take 10 to 15 years to recover. That's Tyson Cure. He manages the family-owned and operated feedlot. The facility can hold up to 28,000 cattle. Of course, the animals don't just eat. They produce tons of manure. A 2008 government study found an operation like Five Star can create about as much waste as a city the size of Aurora. When it rains, feedlots rely on canals and ponds to catch the manure. The problem is when it rains too much, like in that 2015 storm. It it just was unbelievable how much rain we got. And And there was nothing we could have done. Nothing. The storm hit after weeks of wet weather, making it even harder to deal with. State officials declined to comment for this story since their lawsuit is still pending. But I did get a hold of their investigation. 
In it, a witness named Redacted says lights from the feedlot lit the waste ponds the night of the rainstorm. The witness says one of the walls of those ponds eroded. It allowed wastewater into a drainage that leads to the wildlife area. Tyson Cure denies this. He says the containment system never broke, just overflowed. Well, yeah, there was a little bit that went over that we know of, but not to the extreme that they say. If only a little waste left the facility, then runoff from other areas could have contributed to the fish kill. That's why Cure says his business can't be held liable. He and the state will have to hash that out in court next year. But environmentalists like Bob Martin say feedlots in general are accidents waiting to happen. The main problem is when the animals are taken out of their natural setting and they're brought together in such high numbers in a small geographic area. Martin directs the Food Systems Policy Program at Johns Hopkins University. He says manure from feedlots is used to fertilize crops. But as feedlots have gotten more concentrated, they produce more waste than the land can absorb. That's turned feedlot waste from a benefit into a pollution risk, a risk Martin thinks will only become harder to manage. We see that we're in a rapidly changing climate pattern, and we're going to be in for more and more of these intense rain events. Which he worries will cause more spills from feedlots. That's exactly what happened in Colorado in 2015, when the Eastern Plains saw a number of large rain events. State regulators say 28 feedlots discharged waste during those storms, and only the incident near Five Star is thought to have hurt the environment. Bill Hamrick runs the Colorado Livestock Association. He says the state has strong regulations to keep feedlot waste out of streams and groundwater. All facilities are designed to accommodate the average rainfall, and if they are not, they probably have been uh, directed to comply. Or they go out of business. Feedlots can also gain permits to discharge waste during the most intense rainstorms. Five Star didn't have one of those permits in 2015, but it's obtained one since then. It's also improved its waste facilities. In the same time, Kenny Condry, the bait shop owner, says the wildlife area appears to have recovered. And I'm really happy to see that it is straightening out, you know, and becoming a fishery again so these kids can get get out here and get muddy and have a good time. Go fishing. But he says the fish kill hurt his business and the local economy. And he doesn't buy Five Star's argument that any spill was an act of God. God didn't make the feedlot. Man did. So he thinks men should be responsible. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Most classical musicians head to a recording studio or a concert hall to make an album. But this album was recorded in the canyons and riverbanks around Moab, Utah. Double bassist Robert Black is a Colorado native who specializes in modern classical music. When he stumbled upon what he says are some pretty amazing acoustic spaces in the Red Rock country of southeast Utah, he lugged his bass into the canyons, brought along a recording engineer, and improvised an entire album of music over three days. It's called 
possessed. Robert, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. There are a lot of visually beautiful places around Moab, like Arches and Canyonlands National Park, but you hunted for places that sound amazing. What kind of places did you go to record? We went to a a number of places. Um, Some of them were canyons where I would be in a particular location in this canyon, maybe a a rock ledge with a, a... uh, you know, a red red rock background, um, or sometimes it was a little more open. But in every case, it was someplace that had a specific kind of uh, acoustic, either a very dry acoustic, um, could be very reverberant. And then we went to a couple of man-made structures, which were these culverts, one of them draining uh, a very large canyon and another one that was under a road. So, and they had very, they also had their very specific and unique uh, acoustics. And how long did it take for you to discover these places? Did you see a couple of them being like, eh, it's not going to work for me, but this one, this one here, this is a good one. That's right. Um, I, our, our recording engineer, he had gone out to Moab a few days before the rest of us went out there, specifically to search for sites. And then I have a good friend there, Conrad Sorensen, who's who's lived in the Moab area for well, decades. And he's also a very good musician. So he and the recording engineer, Joel Gordon, got together. And Conrad took Joel to all these different locations. And Joel would say, well, this one's, I don't think, so interesting. This one's someplace we really want to check into. So by the time I went out there with the video people, Joel had already discovered a number of these places that we wanted to try out. Your bass isn't the only sound we hear in these recordings. Uh, Let's listen to a section called Night in Hunter Canyon. lot of insects in this music and of course birds you've heard another selection we just played Uh, uh, of course because of where you recorded it when you decided to record this album in this way were you expecting to have so much sound of the birds and insects oh yes that was the point the the whole idea was it it seems like it's a solo album because i'm the only person playing and playing music and it's just one instrument but actually, it's, it's, a, it's an ensemble effort with the environment. So capturing the acoustics of a, of a location, capturing the sound of the birds or the insects or the wind or the trees, all of that was very much um, part of the idea. And those were my partners that I was improvising with. Did they interact differently with you when we began to play the music? Was there a definite change for them or...? You know, it's kind of hard to say, but I I tend to think the answer is yes. Uh, I can remember um, doing one of the tracks, and there were birds that were chirping. And I'm just wondering if they didn't start to chirp back with me or to me or, or together with me. And similarly, there was a tree. We were in one location, and I was playing. And at, at one point, the tree just was very still, and it became very animated, and the leaves make a a tremendous ruckus, and I just kept playing, and then it finally calmed down, and I kept playing. So 
you know, in my in my mind, I'm thinking, yes, uh, the the tree was was getting involved in the music making. Was it hard to get all of this on tape? Were there multiple microphones in different areas? How difficult was it to capture what you experienced? Well, uh, Joel Gordon, the the engineer, has had a lot of experience doing outdoor recording, field recordings like that. So so he's he knew what he was doing. But no, mostly most of the time it was a uh, two microphones. Hmm. And what he called a figure eight pattern. So it was capturing, recording the sound that was in front of it and everything that was behind it. But sometimes the microphones were 50 feet away from me. Really? So they were moved yeah. during different areas that you, that you played in? Oh, yes. And you, you see some of the photographs and the, and the mics are so far away. It's, it's, it's pretty unconventional. And you're still able to pick up what you're playing in, in, in some sort of way. That's right. That's, why the, I mean, that's how, how amazing the acoustics are. As we said earlier, the music you play on the record is improvised. I want to take a listen to this particularly unusual moment. you make those sounds it's all tapping with my fingers and fists and palms of the hand on the bass on the back on the sides on the on the top of it on the tailpiece each each it's like a drum in the sense that each each location on the bass has a different sound did, did you go out there and on this piece say i'm going to go out there and, and drum on the bass no actually i didn't and I, when we went to these different places, I would be there. We, you know, would get there, and I'd, it would take maybe an hour, an hour and a half to to find the right location, get the microphone set and the levels, and for the video people to get their their um, requirements met. And so during that time, I would just, you know, fool around on the instrument, kind of getting used to this the space and the sound. But then when it came time to record. I mean, this sounds like such a cliche, but it, it really is sort of true. I would just try to empty my mind, l- start listening, and just let my hands move. How does it feel now that the, the record is finished and all of this has come together? Oh, it's very gratifying. You know, I, 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 I do a lot of recordings, and I always listen to them once because you want to make sure that they they come out right and there's uh, everything sounds good. Um but this one I actually have listened to m- you know many times. And partly I think it's because I'm not actually listening to me. It feels like well, you know, once again it's another cliche, but I feel like I was channeling this sound with the environment that was coming through me, so I'm not really all that responsible for it. I'm listening to some other Um, creative source make this music. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. We're speaking with double bassist Robert Black. His new album is called Possessed, and it was recorded completely outdoors in the canyons and culverts of Utah. 
Now, this recording is not too far afield of the music you normally perform. You play in a contemporary classical group called the Bang on a Can All-Stars, which is six musicians based in New York City. The group has been around for 25 years, and this is a piece called The Brief and Never-Ending Blur off the group's latest record. Now, this piece, you had to wear a stethoscope to play it. Why was that? That's right. Uh, All six of us have a stethoscope uh, attached to our chest, and we're listening to our heartbeat. You're listening to your heartbeat? That's right. And each person's heartbeat determines the tempo that they play in or the speed at which they're going to play their part. And since no no two heartbeats are the same tempo, we're all just slightly... Um, not together with each other. And it creates a whole different sound, I'm assuming, than if you were all playing simultaneously together in one metronome beat. Oh, yes, and it's also, a, you know, it's, it's, it's a very interesting way to sort of connect with your ensemble partners because you're actually connecting through them with, basically, through the heart. You grew up in Arvada and started playing bass in middle school there. How early were you drawn toward unusual, more modern sounds like what we're hearing? Well, I know when I went to college, um, and I went to, as a freshman, I went to North Texas State in Denton, Texas. I My friends were composers, my, my close friends. And so they were the people that were really responsible for showing me all of these new, new and unusual and, you know, unconventional ways of making music and sounds. Um, but I have a feeling that, you know, I was sort of wired to to be attracted to that because I would listen to the things they would play and I'd go, well, that's fascinating, rather than having a reaction that says, oh, that's that's noise or that's not music or something like that. So I was I was really drawn to 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 those those musics and those people making that music. So is that the moment where you really fell in love with the double bass, or, or is there an actual time that you could pinpoint saying, yeah, this is this is it? Oh, you know it. I think I can, and it's the actual the, the very first time I played it. I had been playing other instruments before. I played percussion and tuba, and then my band teacher in uh, seventh grade, Mr. Dan Gillian, suggested I play the bass, and he showed me how to do a couple of things, and I just went, "Oh wow, this is so great!" And you know, kind of a condensed story. I went home that night and told my mom and my dad. I said. You know, I think I found what I want to do. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Double bassist Robert Black's new album is called Possessed. This is a track from the album recorded in one of those giant culverts he described earlier. You can hear more of the music and see a video clip of him recording the record in locations around Moab at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The holiday season has reached Colorado, and you can find decorations and festivals in every corner of the state. We went looking for celebrations that are a bit off the beaten path. 
take a listen to the sounds of the season in Burlington on the Far Eastern Plains. That's the monster band organ on the historic Kit Carson County Carousel. It's decorated and open this Sunday, December 3rd, one day only for free rides and holiday cheer. Also on Sunday, a bit down the road from Burlington, is the nine-stop Christmas on the Plains tour in Lincoln County. For more on that, we called up Mary Anderson of the Lyman Heritage Museum. Mary, hello. Hello. Christmas on the Plains is a one-day tour of holiday sites in Lyman, Hugo, and Genoa. For uh, people who haven't visited before, paint a picture of Lincoln County and what Christmas is like there. Well, Christmas on the Plains this year uh, encompasses the three different towns. Uh, What we um, try to explain to people is that the Plains have a lot to offer. We're kind of ignored sometimes, but we do have our own special place in Colorado, and our hospitality and warmth makes up for the lack of grandeur of the Rocky Mountains. So maybe a little more homey, a little more personal, and things like yes, that. Yes, exactly. You'll never meet a stranger in Lincoln County. <laughs> we're, we're only 5,000 people in the whole county, so we're very welcoming and warm, and we love to have people come visit. Now, the small towns, of course, have their own kind of color. Uh, Genoa has the Genoa Tower on US-24, which will be serving hot chocolate on Sunday. It was built in the 30s, and the owner would stand at the top and spot cars as they headed his way. Can you tell us about that? Um, yeah, it's it's gone through many different owners. The last one died, and the contents of the tower were sold off. But um, they're trying to repurpose it now and come up with you know, work on it a lot, and due to delayed maintenance, it had kind of fallen on hard times. But mm-hmm. they're working really hard on it and make it really an important part of Lincoln County once again. Now, the the former owner would used to, he'd stand up on top of that thing and he would look for license plates, right? Yeah, he would see if, if someone drove in from Ohio, he'd holler down at him, well, what's going on in the Buckeye State? Or <laughs> what are those Sooners up to in Missouri? Or whatever. And he, and of course, they're their motto always was C6 states. You know, how would you prove that? I don't know. But, you know, that was his, that was their catchphrase. Anything to get and, someone to stop by, I bet. Exactly, yeah. And he, I mean, it worked really well. It's been an icon in Lincoln County for many, many years. Now, nearby in Hugo, it's about 20 minutes away, the historic home of the town's founder will be decorated. And in Lyman, where you are, the Heritage Museum, which includes the old railroad depot, has big plans. What are you putting together? Uh, well, we have decorated the the exhibit building, which is um, at 701 First Avenue in Lyman, and we have we're calling it uh, Christmas through the ages because we have modern trees, we have Victorian trees, um, we have everything. And then in the senior center, we also have the tree festival, which is 23 trees right now are decorated for. We our theme this year was Toyland. Oh, and that'll all be up on display this weekend. Yes. We mentioned the Kit Carson Carousel will be open on Sunday earlier in the day than your Christmas on the Plains. People might make a day of it, stopping for a carousel ride and heading to Lincoln County. How do you feel about uh, people coming from the Front Range to, to, to take, take this in? Oh, that's wonderful. I mean, actually, it, it's faster to drive the Lyman from Denver than it is to drive across Denver. <laughs> because once you, know, once you get east of Aurora, you don't have traffic. You set your cruise on 75, and in an hour, you're in Lyman. 
Well, thanks for being here, Mary. Thank you. Mary Anderson from the Lyman Heritage Museum uh, joined us. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. We're talking about holiday celebrations that are uniquely Colorado and a bit off the beaten path. Let's head now to another corner of the state. Mesa Verde National Park in southwest Colorado puts on a holiday lights festival unlike any other. Christy Brown joins us from the park. Welcome. Hi. Good morning. Good morning. Every year, Mesa Verde lights up with thousands of luminaries. Those are small lanterns made by placing candles in paper bags. Can you describe what that looks like? Um, You know, it it creates a special glow. Anybody that's familiar with traveling around the Southwest during Christmas season has seen these bags light up the walkways, the building tops all across the Southwest, Albuquerque, Santa Fe. And it's a tradition that we've been carrying on here at Mesa Verde for about 20 years now. And usually we have... um, People from all around the area come, people from as far from away as Farmington, which is an hour and a half drive, and it it provides a, a sense of warmth that you you just it feels like Christmas. What started the tradition? You know, it was uh at that time it was the superintendent who had been down to Aztec National Monument near Farmington, New Mexico. And he decided that if Aztec could do it, then Mesa Verde could do it. And we've we've experimented with different ways of lighting throughout the years. We've had lanterns. Uh, we have lit cliff dwellings in the past. And now we're, this year we're doing the headquarters area and featuring our historic district with the luminarias. And you'll have music, storytellers, even telescopes for star watching if the skies are clear. This open house seems to be a labor of love. I mean, anyone who's tried to light a candle outdoors and place it in a paper bag knows that. Can you give us a sense of the numbers, what it takes? How big an undertaking is this? You know, it is It's. It is a, a park-wide labor of love. In 2015, we had over 400 or I'm sorry, 4,000 bags, close to 4,500 bags, um, 120 lanterns. We had 27 volunteers that helped not only keep an eye on the, the luminarias and make sure that they stayed lit, but make sure that we didn't have any unexpected um, light shows due to those. Uh, we see generally almost 1,000 visitors coming up for this. Uh, we have 23 people from 2014 that help light the bags. And it takes about seven tons of sand to keep keep all of those bags on the ground. Oh, keep from flying away in the wind and things like that. Right. It can be windy. We've seen the, the full scale of weather during these events. We've had rain. We've had snow. We've had ice. We've had dry conditions. This year, it's probably going to be a little dry. So it, it would be a perfect opportunity to come out and see this if, if people have not. And, and really briefly, are you concerned about fire with using candles? Like, why not switch to maybe these new LED candles? Um, it, for one thing, it would be fairly cost prohibitive oh, for, the, for the amount that we have out. Um, we really haven't had a concern with fire. The, we have a lot of volunteers walking around, and the visitors themselves are really good about helping us keep an eye on the bags. And, and the bags, you know, they, they may burn a little hole in the bag, but it generally doesn't go any further than that. How did the ancient Puebloans celebrate holidays? 
You know, we really don't have a good idea of those. We know that they did have a recognition of of the changing of the seasons. We have the archaeoastronomy petroglyphs that you see throughout the southwest. Usually it's the spiral design where a shaft of light will intersect it at a specific time of year, and usually it follows the solstice or the equinox. And so we know that they were watching the sky. They were aware of it. They were aware of the seasons, but you know, they wouldn't have had necessarily the sense of of Christmas that we do. Well, it was of course. it wouldn't they wouldn't have any idea of that. So uh, but they would have they would have been a farming group and so they would have known, you know, the days are gonna be getting longer at a certain point it would be time to plant the crops. So it's a bit of a mystery. Thanks so much for joining it us. Is. Thank you. Christy Brown is with Mesa Verde National Park. The Luminaria Open House is Thursday, December 14th over in Lincoln County. Christmas on the Plains is this Sunday, December 3rd. The same day, the historic Kit Carson County Carousel will be open. You can find links at all of these festivals at CPR.org. And that's our show. We'll leave you with another holiday favorite from the Carousel Organ. Thanks to Director Stephanie Wolf and audio engineer Michael Hughes. I'm Nathan Neville. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great day. Thank you.